Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. A lot of public policy debates, either implicitly or explicitly, are focused around uh, what some people see as a conflict between freedom on the one hand and regulation on the other. So there's a tendency to believe that if we want to have more freedom, that we need to have less regulation, uh, that if we have more regulation, we have less freedom. In this particular uh, chapter or paper, I argue that this is not the most helpful way of understanding the issues at stake. Uh, to get a better grasp of the issues, I argue first that we need to recognize that different people mean different things by freedom. So there are some people who argue for a negative understanding of freedom, which is typically understood as freedom and freedom from interference, whether that interference is within with your person or with your property. But there are other people who argue for a more positive conception of freedom, which is the freedom to be able to engage in certain activities, which may require that the actor concerned has access to a certain level of resources, wealth, um, or opportunities. So that's the first point that we need to understand that people mean different things by the term freedom. Second, I argue that there's no necessary connection between a particular conception of freedom and having a more or less favorable attitude towards regulation um, and public regulation in particular. So supporting negative freedom, freedom of non-interference, doesn't necessarily mean that you will support uh, less public regulation, that you'll be in favor of less public regulation. Likewise, if you favor positive freedom, that doesn't necessarily mean you will be in favor of more regulation. The third point I make is that whether people think that regulation enhances or diminishes negative or positive freedom often depends on assumptions that they make about how different forms of regulation will work in practice. So many of these debates are not really debates about values as such. They're really debates about the way people think that regulation will work in practice. And those understandings are often informed by various assumptions about how public regulation works or how alternative forms of regulation in the private sector or in civil society might work in comparison. A non-ideal approach is based on the idea that when you're assessing any particular kind of institution, and in this case, whether it enhances freedom or not, um, you shouldn't idealize the actors who are involved in the process. So if you think about it, whatever understanding of freedom you might have, um, if we had an ideal world where the people in that world were perfect, there wouldn't actually be any need for any kind of regulation, however we understand it. So if you think about um, protecting freedom of non-interference, well, one aspect of that would be freedom from violence, you know, freedom from rape or other, some kind of invasion of your, your personal space. Well, in an ideal world, people just wouldn't engage in violence or engage in rape or engage in some other kind of invasion of your person or your property. So the very fact that we are actually talking about the need to have some kind of regulation or some system of rules implies that we are in a non-ideal world. 
where people for one reason or another may not actually follow the rules or act in a way which is commensurate with the values that we actually want to protect or even to, to enhance. So we should start from the assumption that the agents who are populating our governance structure, our regulatory structure, are themselves non-ideal agents, that they are flawed in some way. Now, there are two sorts of flaws that a non-ideal approach uh, looks, like, looks at. One is what we could call um, a flaw related to their cognitive limitations. This is sometimes referred to as an epistemic problem. And this is the idea that people may not know how to deliver the particular values that we want to protect or to enhance. So you may agree with the idea of protecting negative freedom or positive freedom, but you might not know how to bring that outcome about. And if we're thinking about different regulatory structures there, we're going to be wanting to compare them in terms of how they operate with agents who may face uncertainty in knowing how to bring about the values that we're concerned uh, to enhance. So that's one issue. The second set of issues are issues to do with what we could describe as incentives. So people may have a certain value in mind, whether it's positive or negative freedom, but we might want to compare different structures in terms of whether the agents in the regime have got sufficient incentives to actually bring the outcome about. So a non-ideal approach starts from the assumption that we have flawed actors, so actors who may not have the knowledge or may not have the motivation to achieve a particular objective. And then it looks at how different institutional structures cope with the fact that we are dealing with non-ideal agents when we're trying to bring about more negative freedom or more positive freedom. So let me start with um, negative uh, liberty first of all. So negative liberty is typically associated with the idea of freedom as non-interference. Okay, so the non-interference would be non-interference with your personal space, your, your own body. And it can also be non-interference with the things that you own, your, your property rights. Now, often it's assumed that people who favor a negative conception of liberty, and these are often classical liberals or libertarians, are inherently more skeptical of state regulation because they will see the state as, in some sense, an agency that interferes uh, in their space. Now, this is not necessarily the case. It could be that you are someone who supports very strongly the idea of negative liberty, but you might believe that the defense of negative liberty actually requires quite a significant amount of state intervention or regulation. So, for example, um, as an individual, you might want to be protected you might want to have non-interference from polluters who are seeking to invade your property. That might require regulation to protect your non-interference right, your right not to be interfered with by people who are seeking to pollute the air um, or throw rubbish in your garden or whatever it might be. The second area where the, the negative view might require a significant role for regulation is in actually deciding what counts as non-interference. So, does non-interference include not being interfered with by noise that my neighbor generates? Does it mean not being offended by 
um, the aesthetic choices that my neighbors make when they're decorating the outside of their house? Does it mean non-interference from even quite trivial things, such as the decision of one of my neighbors to switch on their light, which then shines into my property? All of these questions require some kind of resolution to decide what counts as interference and what isn't uh, considered to be interference. And potentially that could require quite a significant role for, for the state. Okay, so that's, if you like, the complication around negative liberty. If we look at positive liberty, there the complications sort of work the other way, if you like. So many people who are associated with a positive understanding of liberty, that's the idea that liberty might require access to a certain level of wealth or resources, it's often assumed that they will be more in favor of some kind of more interventionist stance, a stance which is more favorable towards uh, state regulation. So the argument might be made that if workers are not securing the terms and conditions in the market that guarantee them the resources that they might need to secure their ends, then we might need regulation to enhance their freedom and their bargaining power through, for example, things like minimum wage laws. Again, though, I think this automatic connection, in this case between positive liberty and favoring more regulation, is misleading. Because it could be that if minimum wages and other forms of state regulation are set at a level that reduces employment and cripples economic growth, then the regulation itself may reduce the amount of positive freedom that workers and people in general may have. So it's possible to hold to the view but not interfering in the market, which looks like you are favoring negative liberty, may in the right conditions be what you need to do to secure people's positive freedom. So positive liberty may require non-interference in the same way that non-interference may require some interference from the state. So that's why it's a complicated relationship and you can't necessarily assume that because you favor one certain uh, understanding of, of liberty that automatically you, you will have certain policy preferences. We're not dealing here with values-based conflicts. Okay, so most people, even people, for example, who uh, value negative liberty, um, they also want people to have positive freedom. Most people want uh, people to have some combination of negative liberty, which is freedom from interference, which is what you need to actually be able to enjoy um, whatever wealth or opportunities that you have access to. And likewise, most people who favor positive freedom, people who want people to have a certain level of wealth or opportunity, um, recognize that there needs to be some sphere in which people's lives are not constantly interfered with by external bodies. So in a sense, there is agreement on values that most people support, support some combination of negative and positive freedom. Where there is disagreement is about the effect of different kinds of regulatory structures on delivering these freedoms. And ultimately, I think those kinds of debates cannot be answered uh, without reference to social scientific theory. That's theory trying to understand how different structures might work, but ultimately, uh, evidence to see whether or not in practice particular sorts of regime are more or less likely or seem more or less likely from the, from the evidence 
to enhance the freedoms that we're actually concerned about. So I do believe, as I said in answer to the last question, that we ultimately need, in a context where we're not really talking about a debate between values, but more a debate about the likely consequences of different systems, looking at the evidence. In a sense, we still have a fundamental question there, which is how do you actually interpret the evidence? What is the evidence and who is actually responsible for interpreting it? So, you know, we have major debates um, about what the evidence actually says, and that leaves us with very difficult challenges when in many public policy areas, it's not actually clear where the weight of evidence lies in terms of one regime type um, over another. So it's important to recognize that just saying that, you know, we need to rely on social scientific theory and evidence isn't always going to generate uh, the kind of clear-cut answers that people want, because very often the evidence doesn't point very clearly in one direction or another.